Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing the conversations about the cultures of consciousness. But this week, I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to have a conversation, or you could say that I'm going to have a conversation with myself. Uh, I just got back from Burning Man. I hadn't been to Burning Man for almost a decade, for nine years, uh, until in 2009, just before I went off to get my Ph.D., and uh, it was kind of a trip. And coming back, I thought, oh, man, I really want to do something on the burn. And, I, you know, folks were still traveling, couldn't get a hold of people. And, uh, you know, we had a, a conversation a few weeks ago with Mitch McNango about uh, Coyote on, on the burn. So, you know, it's already been in the air. Uh, but I thought I would indulge myself and just talk for an hour. It's something I've been thinking about doing because I do a lot of public speaking uh, and I often give talks with just, you know, a few ideas and an hour of time. Uh, so I thought I would just uh, reflect on this year's burn, on the Burning Man phenomena, and uh, my own experience and attitude there. And uh, perhaps it will be of interest to uh, regular listeners of the show, if, uh, including new folks who are coming in uh, and checking it out for the first time. Just a reminder, of course, that I've been doing Expanding Mind for uh, eight years now, and uh, there's a treasure trove of shows uh, on uh, on PRN.FM, which is where uh, who who hosts my show, but also on my own uh, Technosis website, which also has tons of my own material. So uh, head on over to Technosis T E C H G N O S I S dot com. Uh, check out uh, past shows as well as a, a voluminous amount of material. I have been a busy boy. So before I talk about the uh, 2018 Burning Man event with the iRobot theme and the inevitable mixture of uh, confusion, exhaustion, uh, glee, lust, insight, and, uh, uh, you know, existential miasma. Um, I thought I'd, I kind of need to go through a little bit of my own past. And I'm, you know, a somewhat unusual burner in that I am, a, you know, uh, sort of guaranteed OG character, even though I was never really a burner in the capital B sense. I never thought of myself as a burner. I went to the event very early in its evolution. And as a uh, kind of uh, participant obser observation has been a major part of my life. I've been attracted to subcultures, but my relationship to them is to both participate in them, get to know the people I resonate with, enjoy the uh, experiences, but also kind of have a reflective observational dimension, which is both kind of a blessing and a curse. It's made my life very interesting, but sometimes a bit, uh, not detached, but a bit confusing in terms of uh, my identity. And that's been true of Burning Man as well, though in some ways it's been the most uh, central or at least continuous reference point in my own subcultural uh, journey with the possible exception of psychedelics and the, well, admittedly, also possible exception of the Grateful Dead. Um, so I'll just uh, do a little, uh, you know, stroll through memory lane here, um, give you a slice of ye oldie days of uh, 1990s counterculture. Uh, in the early 1990s, I got online in, uh, I think, 93, maybe 92. And, uh, you know, this was the pre-World Wide Web days, so you're you're logging in with a... LO and typing little commands and 
getting listservs, and I spent a lot of time on Muds and Moos. And one, uh, one of the listservs I was on was called Fringeware Review. And Fringeware Review is also a magazine, uh, not dissimilar from Boing Boing. In fact, Boing Boing was also a magazine at that point uh, with a similar kind of layout and aesthetic. And then, of course, went on to be a very important online zone. This is, did not happen to Fringeware Review, but Fringeware Review was a, a similar kind of mixture of uh, hacking culture, futurism, uh, drugginess. Uh, it had a somewhat more uh, metaphysical bent. Um, there was more stuff about sort of Gurdjieff and mind mapping and uh, uh, curious approaches to topics like UFOs. I edited an issue with uh, my friend Spiros Antonopoulos, uh, called Chaos Spirituality, which was a very kind of 1990s theme, that being the year of, or the uh, the era of the temporary autonomous zone, uh, whose author, Hakim Bey, was himself kind of a proponent of a kind of chaos spirituality or chaos ontology. And that was very much how I first sort of grokked uh, Burning Man when I finally got there. But I was very lucky because it was uh, in... Um, I think it was probably early 1994 when uh, on Fringe World Review I got a notice of a art festival happening in uh, in Nevada in uh, the, the the end of the summer uh, of uh, 1994, and uh, I was just happening. It was going to be that my my girlfriend and I were going to be traveling in the area. We were considering moving out to the West Coast, and we thought we'd take a little uh, a journey through through the desert, which was not a particularly easy journey. You know, sometimes those uh, early travel experiences with a loved one uh, can get pretty uh, wrangly and uh, uh, on the ropes. And so uh, we were a bit frazzled by the time we showed up uh, on the playa. We had spent some time in uh, Vegas and had visited the uh, the Luxor, which at that point was new and seemed sort of millennialist and bizarre, this kind of pyramid structure with its esoteric kind of overtones, at least for those of us who study the Egyptian mysteries. Um, so uh, we followed the directions up through Gerlach and, you know, went up uh, the road past north of Gerlach for, you know, 10, 15 miles. It was much farther uh, away at that point. That's one of the great distinctions between uh, the current Burning Man and, and for quite some time and uh, ye oldie days uh, was that it was f- much farther out on the playa. So basically we pulled off the road, uh, drove, you know, couple hundred yards there's a shack with a burning kind of mad maxi looking miscreant uh, who took like 40 bucks i think uh from us and uh or 40 bucks each maybe and said okay see that mountain there in the distance and we said yeah we see that mountain he goes okay go go like go you know go 15 miles and take a right so you just drove out on this open plain uh and that was the most one of the most remarkable things about the early events was because you were so much farther out on the playa, so much farther away from the sort of familiar lines of the mountains, that today's event is nestled in a kind of V between these two mountain ranges, not very far away from Gerlach. It's, it, it, you know, if you can see the mountains at all, it's very easy to orient yourself. But back in the day, it was not so. Um, one was let loose into this strange abstract uh, disorientation that was intensified by the fact that there were, of course, no road signs, um, confusing arrangements of lights, uh, and a lot of more gruff, uh, often intoxicated, sometimes highly uh, 
intoxicated anarchists. Um, and it was a very different event. It was much more about uh, about chaos. And, uh, we, you know, we sort of kind of stumbled our way through the whole thing. It was marvelous. And we came back uh, for the next couple of years. The next year in 95, I camped with a group called uh, Spiralo Oasis. And uh, it was a group of tech heads. So it was really, it was some of the first um, real techie folks that were out uh, on the playa, which at that point had, you know, a, a little beginnings of kind of a raver scene and then the old school kind of post-punk industrialist welder uh, gritty uh, anarcho types and of course there were gun nuts you know the famous drive-by shooting range was a sight to behold you know uh, gentlemen and sometimes ladies armed to the teeth uh, driving by in old Buicks and cut cars uh, blasting away at uh, you know Barney the dinosaur or other stuffed creatures out on the desert you could go to the local hot springs etc etc uh one time my uh girlfriend now wife uh jennifer got lost uh, i think this was in 95 um and she found you know it was very easy to get lost no road signs no no uh, roads no path no real pattern to the landscape and uh, she ran into well a Vulcan, I mean, a fellow dressed as Spock with Vulcan ears who behaved in a Vulcan manner and very methodically and Vulcanistically uh, walked her in a spiral pathway from the very point where they were, uh, where they met until she found her camp. Uh, Many marvels occurred. I wrote about the event in 1995 uh, for the Village Voice. It had the great title of uh, Terminal Beach Party, still, you know, one of the best titles, uh, uh, I think I came up with it. It might have been my, my editor, but I think I did it. Um, and that was a great, that was a blast because it forced me to talk to more people than I would have talked to otherwise. You know, on my own, I might have just uh, hung out with whoever I was with and, you know, chatted around. And I'm not super gregarious on my own. But if I'm a journalist, then I got to talk to everybody. So I talked to John Law, who was one of the main cacophony society folks who had worked with Larry Harvey to, uh, uh, you know, put on the event, uh, you know, and in many ways, Cacophony Society is, is as much about the event as Larry Harvey uh, and the, burn, the building of the man, though Larry Harvey became the, fi- the figurehead. Um, so I got to talk to both of them, uh, but especially made a connection with John Law. But I talked to the cops, I talked to the porta potty guys. You know, there was at one point, there were these, these feral mountain men who came out of the, the, the mountains, you know, these sort of survivalist uh, c- characters who were on ATVs and they just came down t- out of curiosity. And I went up to them and I said, so what do you think about all this? And he didn't even look me in the eye and he just said, different kind of weekend, which, you know, as a fair, that's a fair assessment, you know. So, that was a fine old year. And at that point, I was done with writing about it. You know, the whole tension between being a participant observer, being an anthropologist, writing, interviewing, journalistically reflecting on the event, and the fact that the event itself was screaming, experience, experience, experience. It was like the great injunction uh, was to let go of that reflection, let go of those analytic uh, frameworks, to, to immerse yourself, to fly, to be disoriented, to be confused, to discover, to let loose. And plenty of that uh, happened 
uh, as well, uh, along with a lot of my, you know, kind of virtual reality and uh, proto uh, uh, sort of, you know, web 1.0 folks in my my spiral environment were were, uh, doing as well. The next year was one of the great uh, pivot years of Burning Man, 1996, the notorious Helco year. Um, this was the year when, before the event, uh, a, 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 a apparently very cool guy named Michael Fury died um, doing dangerous ass shit. And uh, during the event, some ravers got run over in their tent. And it became clear that it was not a sustainable experience. Uh, the cars were everywhere. It was dangerous. There was exhaust everywhere. It was burning fuel everywhere, there were weapons everywhere, there was fires everywhere, and that was all very chaotic and very exciting, uh, very transformational, although perhaps in a less linear way than people mean it today when they usually mean self-improvement. There it was transformational, more like you became some kind of other, that, that something else happened. Suddenly you were jumping over these burning, toxic you know, piles of fuel with your sneakers melting as like some howling, distorted voice screams through the crowd of crazy drums and and cat calls and s- explosions. And, you know, that was chaos. It was capital C chaos. It was not a city. It was not Black Rock City. And that's what it became. I, I didn't go for the next couple of years. I was writing Technosis. I needed to do a kind of retreat and re- recuperate. Uh, but it was in those years when, you know, largely through Larry Harvey and the crew that was uh, developing around him, that they kind of went for the city metaphor, that the way to organize this chaotic, creative explosion was to build a city. And... Um, that decision, of course, meant that some of the OG chaotes uh, like John Law left the event. So that's why 1996, who's, um, I can't remember the official theme, but everybody remembers it as the year of Hellco, which the idea that kind of Satan takes over Burning Man. And it was sort of a satire about uh, consumerism and, and corporate sponsorship. Uh, Mick Satan's was a, you know, a place to get your, get your burger that that year, and it was a somewhat terrifying year, though it contained much amusement as well. I'm I'm almost positive that was the same year. They, the the years blur, as you can imagine. Um, that was the same year that uh, we were about to watch uh, one of the marvelous spectacles um, uh, laid out by Pepe Ozan, who was one of the great early architects and sculpture artists of the Burning Man aesthetic. Um, a sort of a melty castle, demonic, erotic, uh, surreal uh, architecture uh, that that became the, the that housed these operas or or sort of performances that um, often occurred uh, very very late in the night after you'd been standing around for a very very long period of time. But this one night uh, was happening, going on, and uh, my, my uh, again uh, Jennifer and I were sitting there. Uh, about to watch a performance, and this um, short fellow, actually a, a, a little person, I think a midget, uh, came out all in S&M gear, and he was deeply intoxicated. And he stumbled along, which itself was, was a, a sight to be seen. He stumbled along, and then for some reason, he could sense the the warm uh, cheeriness of, of my uh, 
girlfriend, now wife, uh, who was who was a, a much lovelier person than me, and uh, could feel her her sort of her her presence, her vibe, and so he kind of stumbled her way and then passed out in her lap. So we watched the whole performance with a passed out S and M midget in Jennifer's lap. It's a, just a, an icon to recall. Um, so uh, after this, uh, this, this sort of pact was made, I think, I think one way of understanding Burning Man, and I think one way that I saw this year's event, is that a kind of uh, a pact with the idea of the city was made. And so the city requires organization, it requires institutionization, it requires different groups to manage different effects, it requires a kind of shared language of signs, of a road map, of, a literal, of literal signs, of services, and all of these enabled the event to keep going as it had to increasingly wrestle with the cops and the federal government, because of course it takes place uh, except for 19... 97 on uh, federal land. So you're, there's always these institutional relationships. And by becoming a city, a temporary city, albeit, but a city nonetheless, um, there was a sort of logic that could be drawn from. And in many ways, what's happened is just the further unfolding of that pact, of that analogy, of the event as a kind of city. So the things that people have complained about as the event has changed and become more mainstream, become more visible, become more popular, become more institutionalized, become more cliched, become more predictable, but also become more intense, more richer, uh, more elaborate, more uh, expensive, more spectacular in the full sense of spectacle, in the ambivalent sense of spectacle, nonetheless still a spectacular experience that all of these can be seen as in a way further unfoldings of the city the idea of the city when and all cities are global cities now all cities are digital cities now all cities are uh, technological hives now and so in some ways black rock city is just in the current black rock city is just more like a city um uh, than you know that it used to be uh, when it was a, a, a more unique place or a more um, strictly countercultural place. Uh, so I went again in '99 and uh, went for the next uh, 10 years. You know I could I could continue to uh, you know stroll down uh, memory lane, but I thought I'd, I'd pick out a few uh, choice items, um, partly just to memorialize things. In 1999, with the Spiral folks, a lot of whom worked in the technology uh, world, we we put on an, a, a theatrical event, and theater will return in our story in a moment. Uh, DJ Cry Superstar, which was a, a, a EDM remix of um, Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, with a lot of really remarkable, all the all the main cast members had excellent voices, and nobody else did, uh, which was pretty impressive. Uh, it was it was a remarkable a remarkable event. There were these uh, um, marvelous uh, sort of psychedelic religious Jews who were in the event, and we had this you know mystical Shabbats, and it was a strangely um, religious experience. And indeed, one of my one of the major themes of my uh, Burning Man life has been questioning what is this, what in this is religious, what in this is not religious, how does Burning Man reframe and recontextualize what we mean by religion? And that in some sense has been my uh, main question with the event, uh, at least for 
a long time. And this was one stab uh, at, at, at an answer. And we performed it one night. It was a remarkable event. We ended with uh, walking off towards a 2001-type monolith out in the, uh, in the desert. And everybody who saw it uh, was blown away, and nobody who didn't see it ever thought of it, <laughs> which is some of the marvelous things about, about Burning Man. It's very difficult to, in fact, it's impossible really to review the event. You might be able to, uh, you know, report news about any particular event. You know, you say what happened that year, or there was this, or there wasn't that. But as a reviewer, you know, as a kind of cultural critic, as someone who is a like a scene piece, it's extremely difficult to do because there's so much going on, even in those days when it was, you know, the crowds were 20,000 or something like that. Uh, 25,000, 30,000 in the, in, the, in the early 2000s, uh, that there was so much going on that your own experience was, was largely dependent on, you know, synchronicity, on, on luck, what you ran into, what happened to be happening when you were going by, maybe vaguely thinking about doing something else and then stumbling into some marvel or some horror or some stupidity or some marvelous stupidity. Uh, there's so many ranges of, of irony and, and uh, sarcasm that can both redeem and uh, uh, sort of deconstruct uh, the emotions and values of that event. It's, it's uh, quite unpredictable in that way, but it also makes it very hard to find your way. And so as an anthropologist, uh, cultural critic kind of guy, um, I took the opposite path, which is that I didn't want to know anything about the event. I just wanted it to be like it just appeared magically and I was just winding my way through. So I, I went out of my way to avoid getting to know any of the inner circle. I didn't know who any of the major artists were. I didn't become friends with anyone. I didn't like uh, join, you know, the big large teams that were, you know, building the, the, the more the increasingly charismatic uh, art pieces or the, the man himself or the temple. I would go out there with my, you know, somewhat changing cast of uh, of characters uh of, fr of friends and and lovers and weirdos and uh just have our fun you know do do our thing and it wasn't until 2003 whose uh, theme uh sort of appropriately was beyond belief it was kind of the religious theme if you will uh where, where people kind of went down various uh, mythological or uh, religious paths in terms of their themes and costumes and art cars. It wasn't until 2003 that I decided to sort of bring my writerly, intellectual, reflective self back onto the playa, uh, where I, I gave a talk. Uh, it was just about the, t I think it was the first year where there were, was a space for lectures on the playa, which in some sense is kind of not a very playa-esque uh, thing to do, at least in the old, uh, old school framework. Um, but I jumped in, it seemed like the appropriate thing. And so I gave my talk uh, on Beyond Belief, uh, the cults of Burning Man, uh, in the, in a whiteout. I was inside of a, I can't remember what they call them, there's a certain kind of a, a hut, a hexagonal hut, hexa hut or something, um, that, the, that had appeared on the playa that year. Uh, and we were, we, I was giving my talk in that, and it was a total whiteout, and um, it was kind of remarkable. And in that audience was, uh, which I only found out m many years later, was a fellow named uh, Mark Nichols. And uh, later on, uh, a few years later, 
a number of years later, we got together and did another kind of theatrical riff on Burning Man, this time a rock opera called How to Survive the Apocalypse. And the idea came when Mark uh, Nichols and his uh, girlfriend Julie were waiting in line at a porta potty, which is something one does at, Bo- at Burning Man. And one could speak actually an entire sh- episode about the porta potties at Burning Man. But I'm not going to do that because it's kind of gross. Um, anyway, they're waiting there at the, uh, at, at the uh, porta potty. And uh, this couple in front of Mark and Julie, Ron Miner, and I can't remember who he was with, said something along the lines that the only art form that could capture Burning Man with all of its multiplicity, its sounds and sights, its locations, its characters, its costumes, its uh, ecstatic states, its depraved states, its depressed states, its lack of sleeping states. He said the only art that could capture Burning Man is opera. And Julie said, turned to him and said, hey, well, you know, my my husband, my boyfriend writes operas because Mark Nichols, while he is, has done work in rock and roll, in, in popular songwriting, also has written uh, large-scale musicals that, while not operas in the traditional classical sense of the term, uh, go beyond show tunes, uh, go beyond Broadway. And from that little encounter, the seed was planted that eventually grew into the Burning Opera, I was brought in um, about uh, not too many, a couple months after that, because uh, the some of the inner Burning Man people knew me as a writer and as someone who had, you know, had had creds uh, from back in the day and was a, apparently a nice guy. And so uh, the the opera began. And the reason I'm kind of mentioning that, I, I, I'm going to actually play a, a track or two from from the opera. Um, was that it has to do directly with why I went back to Burning Man, because without telling any more of the stories of what happened in, you know, 04, 05, 06, 07, well, actually, I'll I'll stop and talk about 07, uh, because that really helps explain the growing boredom I had with the event. Uh, So 2007, we were camped, uh, and then I'll get back to to the Burning Opera. In 2007, we were camped with with the fire truck crew. So we had a fire truck which meant that it was a, a fire truck, a, you know, classic sort of red uh, uh, pumper, I think they called them, where, you know, it was the, the, the water hose one, except this fire truck actually spit, well, fire. So it was, you know, a fire truck, like a truck with fire on it, with a flamethrower, basically. So there we are uh, on Monday night of the event, tooling around in the fire truck, and the uh, the eclipse, this, the partial uh, lunar eclipse was on, so the the moon looked like a looked like a a burnt orange planet from some 1970s science fiction paperback hanging there in the sky. And then uh, someone goes, "Hey, the man's uh, the man's burning," and we're like, "No, oh, you're hallucinating! No, it's burning!" And we look, and indeed, the man was uh, was on fire. And so then we raced towards the burning man in a in a fire truck which was pretty funny and strange because the man was indeed on fire and as folks who know burning man lore know all too well uh there had been an act of i guess what you'd have to call technically arson that night although in my own mind that's not the right word i think the right word to find the right word we have to turn back to hakim bay author of 
the Temporary Autonomous Zone TAS book, which in many ways formed the most obvious and most helpful cognitive template to understand the early roots of Burning Man as a pre-urban chaos event. Uh, another phrase from Mr. Bay is the idea of poetic terrorism. That's a you know, little edgy phrase there, you know, terrorism, we don't, you know, we're kind of scared of that. Even the radicals probably don't really like the term terrorism very much. But a poet, but poetic terrorism, what could that possibly be? In any case, uh, Paul Addis's uh, somewhat maniacal act of, of burning the man proved to me uh, a, a window into how much my own mind and interests and sensibility had drifted, not only from the Burning Man organization, whose you know kind of investment in having the event go off as they want to plan it makes a lot of sense, as well as you know the crews that actually built the man and have put in their effort and energy, et cetera, et cetera. Because the question was the next morning, as the rumors went around and what happened and da da da, is what are they going to do? What do you do? You're Burning Man. You're this crazy organization. There's nothing like you. You're like a art festival. You're like a, a, a crazy rave. You're like a pagan gathering. You're like a, a postmodern uh, Mad Max spectacle. What do you do when there's this act uh, of arguably arson or arguably poetic terrorism? So what do you do? Uh, and the decision, of course, went out that they were going to rebuild the man. And the, so the, 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 the man building crew went out and rebuilt the man. And the opportunity to explore what it meant for the central icon, the kind of brand of this particular uh, wash your own brain cult, uh, w went up in smoke. It was as if the institutional logic of making sure that things happen the way they were supposed to happen took over. And that was not altogether surprising and not altogether bothersome to me. But what was disturbing to me were how few people exulted in that moment. Because to be honest, even though Paul Addis did a dangerous thing, even though people could have gotten hurt, even though he took it upon himself to destroy something that an organization and that other builders had put a lot of effort into, you know, even though he had he was potentially taking away the the sort of uh, creme de la creme moments of uh, you know tens of thousands of people who were going to go to the event were paying good money to get their you know Dionysian rocks off. Nonetheless, riding on that fire truck towards the burning man under the or burnt orange moon was the first time in years that I smelled again the ancient chaos that I had felt in the 1990s. And whether or not that's, you know, appropriate, inappropriate, politically okay, uh, whatever, I, I, can't, I can't deny that exultation, that glee, that sense of the marvelous incarnate. And so I was very surprised when speaking to people throughout the next few days, how few people uh, tasted that. And so I could tell at that point that maybe the reasons that people were doing this and my own reasons, and perhaps just my own attachment to my past, uh, had 
sort of come to kind of a, a, a breaking point or a sort of letting go period. But even as I let go of the event, I went a couple more years before I stopped. Uh, I became in- involved in this burning opera uh, thing. But what was cool about the burning opera was it was never designed to be take place on the playa. Instead, it was a kind of vehicle to communicate uh, Burning Man to the outside world and through the medium of rock opera. And you can say the, the, the story, the vibe, the, the music was kind of a, a cross between uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, previously mentioned, Hair, and uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. And uh, it was a story of, you know, a couple newbies go to the playa, start to fight, you know, they get split up. He goes off and has a dark night of the soul. She kind of uh, discovers her own um, power. And in the meantime, we get a, a kind of flashback to the 1990s and the early, uh, the origin story of the event, how it begins on Baker Beach in San Francisco. The cops come, uh, they discover uh, this, this ancient lake in Nevada, northern, northwestern Nevada, and they take the event out there. And it goes through its uh, chaotic period until there's sort of a split in the road and uh, the kind of culminating conflict uh, of the, the origin story in the opera is between Larry Harvey and John Law, or what we called The Hat and Mustachio. Uh, so actually, I want to play a couple tracks from it. The Mark Nichols is a, a brilliant composer, and the music and the, the event were quite spectacular. The people who saw it, uh, we did a couple versions of the show, one in, in uh, 2008, one in 2009. And then there was another version in Los Angeles uh, that I was not directly involved in, but was also marvelous. Uh, and the people who saw it uh, really quite loved it. And I was very happy that, that even grizzled, jaded, cynical burners, much more grizzled, jaded, and cynical than myself, um, mostly were I- extremely pleased uh, with what we had done because I was able to take my, uh, as the librettist, I was able to take my anthropological um, subcultural journalist skills and boil them down into songs that kind of represented different angles on the event, different types of characters, you know, the, the, the fluffy raver types, the uh, uh, drunken DPW types, uh, the, the, the mystic hippies, uh, the, the horny uh, drag queens, the um, uh, crazed exuberant clown-like uh, uh, characters that would fill the esplanade on a Friday night. Uh, so it was a, a very uh, wonderful experience uh, overall. So I want to play uh, uh, two tracks. Uh, first um, is uh, the song Gypsy Dogs, which opens the show and uh, yeah, has a kind of a little melancholic riff on uh, the reasons that so many people came to the playa and continue to come to the playa, which has something to do with uh, a certain kind of homelessness that I think we can all identify. So here is uh, Gypsy Dogs from How to Survive the Apocalypse.
up from the wreckage. We moved like gypsy dogs. We're hunting for something we can call home. Oh, 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 oh. We wrote the writing on the wall. We scraped the barrel dry. We forged the wrenches for the monkeys to throw. Oh, 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 We lost ourselves in the city. We turned away from the crowd. We plunged through the nighttime, horny and stoned. The dust was dry as acid. The night was smooth as skin. We heard our hearts pounding through the day. So that was Gypsy Dogs, the uh, the uh, tune that opens uh, How to Survive the Apocalypse. And part of the reason that I'm spending time talking about the opera, I mean, it's it's not very well remembered. It's not, uh, did we, we, we made a DVD and we made a CD and they kind of went out and nothing really happened. There's clips on YouTube, not that many people watch it, which is actually okay by me because for me, a lot of the spirit of Burning Man is the spirit of the moment and, and, and putting a huge amount of work into one event that is extraordinarily evanescent and is a marvel to those who see it and essentially meaningless or non-existent to those who were not there. For me, there is an extraordinary beauty to that, that in our era of like infinite recording and, you know, keeping your, stuffing your CV and just having all these references and all of these things that live eternally in digital space, um, I think is very important value to keep in mind at, at, as an artist, uh, as someone who's producing things uh, in the world. 
Uh, it's one of the reasons I often don't record my talks, which I do spontaneously. So, you know, people go, hey, what was that great thing you said? And I'm like, I don't remember. I was riffing. I, 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 I'm not in control. I don't know. Uh, and you know, it's recordings are good. I record too, you know, da, da, da. I'm not, I'm not, I'm no purist. Um, if Burning Man teaches you anything, it's about, uh, not being a, uh, a purist. Uh, nonetheless, the other reason that I'm talking about how to survive the apocalypse is that the producer of the opera was a woman named Dana Harrison, who, uh, was well known inside, uh, the inner circle of the Burning Man folks. She had come to the event in the very late 1990s after being a hot shot at, uh, you know, in, in corporate San Francisco, working for Charles Schwab, working for, I think, Bank of America. Um, and she was already a, a, a deadhead, already a world traveler, already a remarkable woman. And uh, she, she signed the checks. And even as she was signing the checks, she just encouraged Mark and I and, and, and Christopher Fooling, who was the director and, and helped uh, write the, the story and um, you know, craft this event, uh, just let us go, you know. And it was the same spirit that she had brought to uh, the, the cafe and folks who have, have um, been to Burning Man know that the kind of center camp cafe is sort of the, the, the hub of the wheel. Uh, and she had run that place for a long time. And she actually did a lot of significant things uh, for the event, which I only found out about later. Uh, she helped get their finances in order. She helped create a modern ticketing system based somewhat on the Grateful Dead ticketing system when the event became more and more uh, popular. And she also wrangled with the, uh, the BLM when the BLM uh, was trying to ram extraordinary fees uh, down Burning Man Org's throat, uh, and she was like, this is bullshit. And, and she had the, the, the chutzpah and the smarts and the institutional authority and uh, uh, just the, well, as she would put it, the balls <laughs> to, uh, to take these guys on. And so she brought that energy and that commitment to community and creativity and uh, transformation to uh, the Burning Opera. Uh, and all this is a roundabout way of saying that she died earlier this year. And so I went to Burning Man this year after not being there for almost a decade uh, and not really caring very much, frankly, most of the time. You know, a little bit of FOMO on the, if I could have a transporter, I would have put myself there. But this year I went for, uh, for dead people, for Larry Harvey, uh, for John Par Perry Barlow or you know, both folks, folks I knew, but not well, uh, for my good friend, Dale Pendle, who's been on this show, a extraordinary, uh, entheobotanist philosopher, poet, uh, and, but mostly for Dana. And so I went, uh, to remember the dead at the temple and, uh, which is a funny reason to go to a exhausting, crazy party out in the desert. And I, you know, I, I had a lot of fun as well. And, um, you know, I could, I feel like I should rattle off some responses having not been there uh, for almost a decade. Uh, there were some things that I sort of expected. You know, I was not surprised by the visible uh, Instagram culture, the kind of selfie culture. There were selfie sticks. There was that kind of vibe 
of uh, of posing in front of in, in front of objects and capturing for the sort of circulation of narcissistic images through the through the internet that was that was pretty predictable although it led to a funny moment because one of the uh, I think one of the dynamics of Burning Man art and why that it, it doesn't really work outside of the playa most of the time some pieces do do translate. It's not so much just because it needs to be in the desert or you need to be high as a kite or, or, or whatever, or the dust or something. It, it's that the, the logic of Burning Man is this kind of quest for wonder. Uh, no matter what you're doing, you're sort of partly on some quest that gets interrupted by some other thing. And a lot of the art functions in this following sense. You look in the distance and you see some wonder. What is that? Is that a magical castle? Is that a strange elephant? Is that a, you know, a, a witch's hut? And then you, you go towards it and you're drawn toward it. It pulls you out of this, this whole chaotic realm of possibility. All these lights flashing, all these appearances, all these possible worlds, all these portals. And you, But no, no, I'm going to head towards this one because it caught my eye. And then somewhere along that way, almost inevitably, not always, but almost inevitably, you go, ah! Oh, it's just this, and some people are standing around smoking, and there's some LEDs and a you know two two by fours and some you know tape and shit, and you're like, oh my god, that was it. But that whole thing, the art is not the object. The art is the whole process that your psychology went through. And I my version of that this year was stumbling across what I thought of as a satanic throne out in the desert, out in the, you know, in the playa area. It was a, a platform with a, a central throne with two big horns on the, on the kind of upper parts of the, of the throne, an upside down pentagram before it, an upside down pentagram, I think, on the, on the throne. And then there were these other sculptural objects to the side. And in my mind, I'm like, Wow, that's great. I mean, I've been like tracking religion out here for a long time and I've seen, you know, witch, witch circles, spiral dances, uh, OTO Gnostic masses. I've seen a lot of voodoo rituals. I've seen a lot of weird shit out here, but I've never seen a proper satanic ceremony. So I'm like, yeah, this, the, the, the Church of Satan's in the house or whoever was doing it. And so I kept coming back because I wanted to see like what was happening. So one afternoon I come by and and there are these like, you know, bless their their hearts, but they're these sort of like pasty uh, kind of sci-fi nerd couples in bondage gear, uh, waiting to get their photographs taken on the the sort of uh, rack beside the satanic throne. And there's a, another woman who's a woman who's clearly kind of was sort of the organizer of the space where she was sort of telling them how to pose. And then somebody else was taking the photograph, and then they would go, kind of go off. This was very much the D and D to B and D crowd. And then another sort of couple would come on and get described, and then there was this picture taken. And uh, the sense of deflation <laughs> that occurred in my own imagination was, let's say, instructive. In many ways, Burning Man is just again more like another city. So you see this, this the same symptoms of the same delirium and. Uh, degeneration and weirdness uh, that's happening in the in the rest of uh, the culture. Uh, the the music as well was uh, somewhat uh, 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 underwhelming. Uh, and I've been to a lot of ED other EDM festivals that have have a lot of tasty music. I've never really understood why Burning Man generally has such bad music. There's ex marvelous exceptions, of course, of course, but overall, uh, it's very unexperimental. Um, but 
you know, and I missed some of the big art. Like most of the art was okay. You know, I saw a few things, but I, I the, the the big fancy thing was this drone, the uh, these programmed drones that were would move uh, to to mimic murmuration. Those marvelous clouds that swallows form, that kind of sentient crowd effect. Um, which sounded, you know, properly posthumanly creepy and reminded us that Burning Man is very much embedded in a sort of crazy wing of the, of the you know, military technological digital takeover of reality and that, you know, it, it's sort of a weird Petri dish of a, a kind of R&D lab for uh, posthumanism. Uh, not always intentionally, which is what the, the paranoid conspiracy theorists think, but, uh, but there, you know, we, we are in the Silicon Valley's, uh, backyard. And so the iRobot theme definitely had uh, brought up the volume on the transhumanist, uh, potential here, but, you know, it often fell sort of flat. There was a lot of dorky robots and there was this big, uh, orb called the orb that hung there and it, it was supposed to reflect or do something, but it was covered with dust. So it just sort of looked like the weird, like, I look kind of like the orb in the prisoner, which, you know, gave it, gave it a bit of a, uh, a, a little bit of a paranoid Phil Dickian, uh, twist. And, you know, when I brought my car, uh, in today, my, the, the van I took to the event, the, the, the Mexican-Americans who were washing it gave a, a smirking uh, response, which because they had been dealing with these cars all day. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm there, I'm like picking up my hat with like a Hare Krishna symbol on it and this big octopus and this other like weird junk and LED lights that I had. And I felt kind of foolish and I could see how sort of silly the event can appear and how routinized it is, how hashtagged uh, it is. And I can be cynical about it. I can be jaded about it. Um, and yet, despite the fact that some of my fears uh, were were fulfilled by my, you know, fellow quote unquote burners, by some of the quality of the event, et cetera, et cetera. Nonetheless, I came back uh, very heartened. And the reason is simply uh, the temple. There's nothing like the temple on the planet. The temples, of course, start, appeared in, I can't remember the first year now, early 2000s, somewhat serendipitously, but soon became established as one of the most important spaces on the playa, the place where people go to remember their dead. And people put in shrines, they write notes, uh, and then the night after uh, the man himself is burned on Sunday night, uh, the temple is burned. It's not always been on Sunday night, but let's just go with it. Um, uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a remarkable experience to be in a crowd of tens of thousands of people who are almost entirely silent watching a building burn. Uh, this year, many of the temples have been done by David Best. This year was another artist whose name I should have uh, looked up, a French architect. Uh, it was a beautiful building. I spent a lot of time there meditating uh, in front of Dale's uh memorial in front of Dana's memorial one night I dressed up as a as a bun is the bunny character I played in the burning opera so I'm like this grizzled bunny with a bullhorn uh, and I went there and I got into lotus position and you know meditated for two hours with burning incense and it was a very strange experience uh, all these different layers and and and, uh, and, and levels uh, of my time there because it had been so long since I had been there that like I was remembering all the different years that I had been there at different in different random ways so it felt like a kind of transtemporal uh, 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 playa that I had found myself inside 
but the thing about the temple is that I think it's about 75% of people in, the, in Black Rock City say they have no religion. So it is a religious place for the non-religious. Maybe it's not a religious place. Maybe it's a sacred place. Maybe it's not a sacred place. Maybe it's a place of memory, of, of the scream of absence, of the uh, haunting quality of memory and of appearance, of pure appearance. The pure appearances that we are, that art is, that time is, that objects are, and that fire is. And, you know, in the end, like, for me, the, the, that any attempt to write off Burning Man as an as a important part of global culture, as a symptomatic but also creative, innovative, and still deeply weird and oftentimes sarcastic in a very good way, uh, expression of our contemporary cultural environment. But in addition to that, even more importantly than that, is the temple, is that there is a way to remember, to weave in our grief, our longing, our loss together without a God, without a church, without an organized structure, and then in the very act of serving that up, all of those beautiful memories, books people made, art, uh, shrines, all of this stuff given into the maw uh, of the fire uh, was really uh, you know, an extraordinary uh, event. So uh, I think in, in uh, memory of Dana, I'd like to just play one more tune from the Burning Opera. I choose this one because in addition to her magnificent personality, she was a collector, <clears throat> a hoarder of uh, costumes uh, from her, her world travels, from costume shops, from opera sales. And uh, one of the uh, most fun songs in the Burning Opera uh, is called Inside Out, is about the role of costume, seemingly the most superficial of uh, of human expressions, the role of costume out in the playa and how it actually points to some of the deepest dynamics. So uh, I'm, I'm going to leave you with this tune, Inside Out. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, unconventional expanding mind. And until next week, keep your minds open. Desert out here, a low red look of khaki, denim and scruff. But then the drag queens came. Feather boas and parasols, lingerie and stilettos, rubber thongs and vermilion lace, perversion and grace. Leopard stockings and Chinese robes A menagerie of cheap shades Bones in your nose You know anything goes out here Anything goes out here Purple pedenda dangling dongs Hippie dippy beads and formal gowns Star high boots and fairy wings Playboy robes and vinyl skirts So short they lived on their own Woo! Red hot pennies on Santa Claus A stop on for Jesus H. Christ Accessories for the body and mind So the body won't mind you at Accessories all Accessories for the body and mind So the body won't mind you at all
Ostentatious dream. 